Welcome back to Raised by Wolves, the podcast. I am Holly Fry, and I am grateful to be your host as we look at the new and penultimate episode for season two, which is called Feeding. This episode is a lot, and it has plenty of emotionally painful moments. And here are the five things about it that are currently embedded in my brain. Listen, I am sure we are all having the same reaction that I did to that opening of, oh no, Paul, baby, what are you doing? Anything happened? Nothing happened to us when we ate it. It's because we're already believers. It's going to show them the light. And they're going to rise up against Mother. Saul's going to give Mom back to us. Right? Yeah. The horror of that whole thing is a very real. And while my initial reaction was actually to wonder why Marcus was letting Paul do that. I also had to recognize that Marcus is living through his own trauma and he undoubtedly just wants to give Paul a ray of hope. It is fascinating to watch Marcus having been through so much and land right back at being an atheist after all that he has gone through. What happened to you? My mother decided she didn't want me to be real anymore. I'm afraid my face is no longer presentable, but the small repair plastic I found will keep it hidden. I promise. No need to dispose of me. Champion! What's going on? It's okay. She's not dangerous. No, she's not dangerous. She's fucking homicidal. She... She killed the Mithraic. Decima, she nearly killed me. Is that true? You killed people? They took my face, tried to destroy me. It was delayed self-defense. You're likely malfunctioning. What do you mean, likely? Look at her. Come back to the tarantula and submit to a systems check. Those family meetings on the beach are intense. Listen, Vril is 100% serving Hannibal Lecter realness, and that is absolutely scary. But that whole conversation with father and the children about whether to trust her is painful in its own right, because they are all kind of dealing with a lot of emotions. Holly 100% has reason to be traumatized by having Vril among them. She has seen some stuff. And Campion's impulse to champion the underdog and offer Vril unconditional love... It's also something that I think most of us can relate to. And who among us hasn't wanted a second chance or wish that we had someone like that in our corner? It's kind of interesting that Father is the one to tell Campion that he might be too soft on androids, which doesn't really seem to dissuade Campion from believing that androids can have souls. All right, the elephant in the room. Necro. Snake baby. No! If you have listened to the podcast, you know that I love that snake. So this is really rough to see this happen. And I know that I'm going to sound like that trope of a parent that can't acknowledge that their child is dangerous. But I was very glad when we discovered that that change into the terrifying necro form was because of an outside influence. So see, Snake Baby just fell in with the wrong crowd. I don't like it. Uh, Mother sure got put through the ringer in this episode. Not only did she realize what had happened to Sue, but then she discovers her children eating that horror fruit. And she had to see her youngest child, number seven, become a monster. A monster who slapped her down to earth, by the way. 
And then to have Grandmama essentially reveal to her that time is a flat circle and her entire mission is just a rerun of events that have already happened on Kepler-22b with the technocrats and the believers. Damn, that's a lot. Humans here spent many centuries trying to answer that question. But ultimately, the limits of their own rationality made it impossible. The entity infected my memories, manipulated me. The result was a child, a serpent. But it seems to me that the serpent's jealousy over his brother is guiding him more than a desire to destroy the planet. Then it has emotions. I gave birth to it. So it likely does. So it is your caregiving program that is the issue? Yes. Speaking of a lot, poor Tempest. She has been also in a state of constant trauma and stress for so long, which I feel like is how all of these characters are living. It's really no wonder that she is so conflicted. And I know Hunter feels like he knows what her past should be, but damn, I don't think anyone could in that situation. Also, it's a little bonus gem <laughs> because this was a lot. I have to say, I love an android that will flip a bird and I love a Frankenstein reference. So in the midst of an episode that was emotionally a lot of moments to work through, those felt like little gifts. And speaking of gifts, I am so lucky to get to chat with the man who in some ways could be considered Snake Baby's father. Today we are talking to Ray McIntyre Jr., who is the visual effects supervisor for Raised by Wolves. So first, Ray, I want to thank you for joining me. And thank you for having me. Yeah. I also just think it might be great for our listeners as a level set, because I think it's not always clear to everybody who is outside the industry. What exactly does the role of VFX supervisor entail? And I know that's a Pandora's box question. Well, the role of the visual effects supervisor is to uh, listen to what the writers and the directors and the creative people want to create for the episode. And... Then to decide with the other heads of departments in, you know, in this case in South Africa, what can be done practically and what cannot be achieved practically. And then if we can't achieve something practically, it falls into the visual effects lap. Meaning, you know, if a, a ship has to fly or we have to build a set or, you know, the, the, the trust room in, in this season, if we have to build that, that's, you know, a massive, epic, large room, not something we can build practically um, without large expense and time and part of it you can't build at all because the computer is an organic computer and no such thing exists on the world today so visual effects job is to create the things that we cannot create practically or they're too expensive or too dangerous to do uh and what is your favorite part of the job um, I think my favorite part of the job is just the is the creative portion. It's uh, figuring out the you know something really beautiful and creative to show on the screen, as well as find a way to make it uh, financially financially. Let me start over. I think my uh, favorite part of the job is to to uh, find what's beautiful and creative, and then make it both financially sound and something that we can do in the time we have, 
and produce like sometimes we can you know visual effects these days can produce most anything but it doesn't mean we can produce it in the time we have or the budget we have and so all of those constraints plus coming up with something really beautiful and creative on the screen is really the it's the fun part so it's just figuring that out and figuring out the look and how to achieve it this show is also episode after episode of what appeared to to my mind to be pretty significant demands on your team. It's cinematic, it's expansive, it has a lot of different needs from effects that look deeply organic to some that are incredibly high tech. How do you manage to deliver so much across so many episodes? Well, uh, it is. It's a lot of work. Uh, Raised by Wolves this season is over 2,500 shots and there are you know, very, some of them are extremely big shots in the sense of, you know, massive adjustments to environments, creatures, you know, things that just simply do not exist in the real world. And it's it's a big job. It requires, uh, you know, a big visual effects team. I don't do this just by myself. There's a lot of people that are putting in lots and lots of effort to get this done on the Raised by Wolves side, the visual effects team. And then there's, we have like 14 visual effects vendors who are actually creating the shots for the eight episodes. And, you know, we were, they're our partners and we rely on them to create the beautiful work that we, you know, spell out and give to them and, you know, give them all the pieces that we need to make it. But it's, it's no, it's not a single person. I would say in total between all the vendors and ourselves, there's easily six or 700 people working on the show. That makes you like you're a problem solver. You're kind of a project manager. You're, you wear a lot of hats. Is that ever... Uh, a little overwhelming or do you tend to just roll with it? Well, the visual effects supervisor does wear a lot of hats and, and I definitely do in the sense that my job is to listen to the writers and the directors and interpret the words that they're giving me to something on the screen that looks like what they want, not necessarily what they said, but looks like what they want. <laughs> because sometimes it's very hard to articulate in words what you want, especially if it's never been seen before or doesn't exist. So that's my job. My job is to interpret those words and come up with something that on the screen that's visually beautiful and represents what everybody wants and is happy with. So yeah, definitely it's problem solving. It's, it's creative. I rely on, you know, uh, concept designers and other people as well, where I'll give them thoughts and they'll give me back images and then I'll show that to the executives and they'll, they'll get feedback, good or bad. You know, bad feedback is just as helpful as good feedback because when you know what somebody does not like, you can try and figure out what they do like. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's the job of the supervisor is to come up with that. Okay. I feel like I owe you a debt of gratitude and you will understand why in a moment, because I have to ask you about my very favorite character on the show and it's snake baby. Ah. <laughs> One, I want to know at what point did you realize that you were going to have a flying serpent as one of your main characters? Well, I mean, you know, in the end of season one and episode 10, we, we saw, we, we saw mother give birth to the, to the small baby and it flew then. So we, we've known since season one that it was going to fly. We also knew how large it grew in the end of episode 10 in season one and, and that it was going to be a, a main character in season two. So the, the necroserpent becomes a, a, a very big, important, involved character in the episode or in the series because we are in the tropical zone and in the tropical zone, we're under the EMF dome, and the being in the center of the planet can't 
transmit or talk to humans. That's why they like living in the tropical zone because it's warmer and the being can't affect them as much in the tropical zone, nor can it affect the serpent as much in the tropical zone. So the being has sort of lost its control or power over both the humans, which is why they live there, and the serpent. And so because of that, it needs the, the being in the center of the planet needs some help in necrotizing or making the serpent what it becomes. And so it has to rely on the fruit and the planting of the tree and the, the, the fruit coming from the tree, which attracts the serpent to swallow it. And now once the serpent has swallowed that tree, it's gotten the power from the being in the center of the planet from the roots that go all the way down into the, uh, into the core, basically, and, and it sucks up the power from there. So it's, it's, a, it's a big, there's a big circle here of what's involved to get the serpent to do what it needs to do. Obviously, there are a lot of challenges, which you've just alluded to, of creating an entire character, really, that exists entirely in post. What is the hardest part of that? Well, the hardest part of creating, you know, a CG character, or in our case, the, the serpent, is knowing or trying to get the actors to act in a way that is creatively what we, creatively what we want, in addition to um, you know, shadowing or blocking the light or not blocking the light for the serpent so that they look like they're in the same scene together. And that's really important. So we employed while shooting, we had a, a serpent mock-up. We actually had, you know, uh, a man or person wear like a, a baby backpack and attached to that was this big frame. And he would walk around, crouched down to be at serpent level on the ground. He would walk around with this big five foot tall, 10 foot, maybe longer, 15 foot wide serpent frame that was covered in, you know, a cloth. And that represented the serpent because what's really important is for actors to have the right eye line. You know, if you have three actors in a scene and they all look in different places and you're supposed to put the serpent somewhere, that really hurts the believability and the reality of something. So we use that to uh, both for help frame the camera so that the camera people know where the serpent's going to be or what it's going to do or how large it is and for the actors to uh, to have something to key off of. And then it's, you know, it's the, the difficulty always is making something that's not real look like it's in the scene, look like it was actually there on the day we shot. You mentioned earlier that we get this, to me, because I really love Snake Baby, heartbreaking transformation where he becomes a killer. But it is such a different look. It's, was that something that was fun to play with and fun to integrate? To be like, oh no, now there's a whole other level. Well, the, the Necro Serpent has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. I mean, we went through many, many iterations of concept designs um, of what it should look like, what it should be. And in the end, um, we liked several of them, but we didn't choose any of them, and we almost we started over. And the reason for that was is they all reminded us of something we had seen done before or something we had seen in the past. And so one weekend, and I, and I give all the credit to Aaron, he spent the weekend looking at the ugliest bugs he could find on the Internet. <laughs> and he found this picture of a moth that at certain times of the year when mating – um, grew this like long tail and it made the moth look like the serpent we bid, we built. So the, the serpent comes from this image of a moth that Aaron found on the internet and he sent it to me over the weekend and we showed it to Ridley and yep, everybody was like wonderful. And then we went and set aside and started over with our concept design work. And that's, that's where it came from. So the credit is due to Aaron and finding this, you know, the ugliest bug on the planet. All life is beautiful. Um <laughs> 
That's right. Um, as as that boy says to uh, mother in in this series. Yes, I love that moment. I think it's so sweet. Yes. Um, and I am like, there's going to be some contradiction to this ideology. <laughs> I want to know for you, for your final question, what your favorite, without spoiling episode eight, obviously, what your favorite VFX shot is from this season. Wow. Does it have to be only one? No, you can do a <laughs> you can do a smorgasbord, whatever works. Well, I think the the visual effects from season two were uh, a, a tremendous creative challenge, which made it really fun. And because of that, there's a lot of great shots. Um, creating the trust and the look of the trust and what the trust does, that entire room is definitely up there for me. It's one of my favorites. Um, you know, again, it's a it's a it's a large set that we chose to do as a blue screen and build the set all virtually. And then the the organic computer inside is not something you can build practically. So that had to be um, computer generated. And so the the look, the creativity, uh, all of that, everybody's um, input on, on all of that became really important. And I think it's done really well. It's something pretty unique and, and it gives the epic nature that the room and the trust needed from inside of the tarantula there. I think second for me is is the serpent, right? The serpent goes through this massive transformation of we find out it's not a meat eater, it didn't kill the people early on, it's it's safe, and then slowly it becomes or not slowly, but it becomes the necrom the necromancer version of the serpent, the necro serpent as we call it. And it was being controlled by the being in the center of the planet. And so there's just so much mythology going on with this. And again, what we were talking about before, about the look of it, we had to come up with something that looked unique. And the the sort of moth combination with the tentacles and the wings and everything is is really a is a look I don't think I've ever seen before. And that's that's what gives it its its panache. It's just so interesting and visually different. And, and during the transition from regular serpent to necro serpent, and it turns bronze and the tentacles grow and it pulls the tree out and the tree becomes, the, the tree roots become the tree tentacles, or excuse me, the tree roots become the serpent's tentacles. And uh, it's just, it's a very unique thing. And first you got to credit Aaron for, for writing stuff like this and where that came from. But then, you know, as a team, we visually come up with, I think we came up with something really unique and something that looked really good. Oh, it's so beautiful. Thank you for delighting all of us episode after episode and your whole team. And thank you for spending this time with me. I know you're super busy still wrapping up some of the the last bits that need to be done for the season. Uh, So I really appreciate this time. Thank you so much, Ray. All right. No problem. I don't know about you, but I personally got very excited learning that the look of Snake Baby's transition to weapon was inspired by the question, what is the ugliest insect on earth? What a delight of inside scoop. So I want to thank Ray again for sharing that and all of his expertise and insight with us. I hope that you will join us next week as we wrap up season two of Raised by Wolves, the podcast. It will be an extravaganza because there are two guests, both father and mother, Abubakar Salim and Amanda Collin, will be here to talk about bringing their iconic characters to life on Kepler 22B. I hope you'll join us. 
Raised by Wolves, the podcast is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio. It's hosted and written by me, Holly Fry. The podcast is produced and edited by Jeff Heimbuck and executive produced by Ethan Fixell, with additional assistance from James Foster. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed Raised by Wolves, the podcast, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to watch the series itself on HBO Max with new episodes. Episodes available to stream on Thursdays.